welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a lectionary podcast where we explore what the Bible, the Christian sacred text, has to teach us about living and flourishing in empire and violence and white supremacy in the hard and strange times that we are living and working in today. What do we white folks have to learn together from scripture about what our role and responsibility and call is? The music in our podcast is a live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song, We Are Building Up a New World for the Freedom Movement. It's a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for our podcast. For special episodes of The Word is Resistance this Lent, listen in as podcast contributors join in self-reflection and community with each other. We want to learn from each other, from our mistakes and misperceptions, from our own places of pain, and also from our places of joy, healing, and hope which might guide us in this time as white Christians working for racial justice. What ways of being and belonging, meaning making and ministry, spiritual practices and movement practices can help us move towards God and towards community? The late Dr. Vincent Harding, elder and leader in the Black Freedom Movement, often spoke of live human signposts, people in our lives who can help us find the way toward greater wholeness and multiracial democracy. This Lent, we look towards each other in this, to the scripture and to the live human signposts in each of our lives to guide our path forward. I'm the Reverend Claire Brown, and I am coming to you from Creek and Cherokee Territory in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I currently serve as an associate priest at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. And I'm Reverend Jean Jeffress, and I live in the city of Oakland in Northern California, which exists on the unceded land of the Ohlone people. And I serve as an associate minister at a local church in the Northern California Nevada Conference up here in Northern California. And today we are digging in to our gospel lesson from the gospel according to Mark in chapter one. Jean, do you want to start us off? Sure. So this is Mark 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, with you. I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Here ends the reading. So what is going on in this passage? <laughs> yeah. So I love that Mark, this is like the Mark cold open with Jesus, right? This is the first we see of him. Mm -hmm. 
and it's pretty dramatic. <laughs> yes, it is really dramatic. Um, I, 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 you know, there's a couple things that stick out. The, um, the, that Jesus is driven out to the wilderness is very interesting to me, that that's the first thing that he does. And let me see, what does it say again? Um, the spirit, the spirit immediately drives him. So is that the spirit that descended on him like a dove? I guess, I guess it is. And then now after John was arrested, then Jesus, uh, Jesus came out to Galilee. So the, I guess after he was in the wilderness, the mm -hmm. time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe in the good news. So First, he goes into the wilderness. That's the first thing. Um, we don't get any wilderness story from John, so we get or from Mark, so we get to, well, you know, make it up or decide. <laughs> and then it's like Jesus is doing the John thing again, but but a little different, like not screaming out of the wilderness that people need to repent and going right to the Jordan. But uh, I mean, the wilderness is obviously this place of. Uh, traditionally of change uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they're in the wilderness. And then, yeah, him coming back out. I mean, and then this good news, it seems like it's the good news that nobody really wants to hear, at least <laughs> not in this power structure. So that those are the things that are coming out to me right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, I can't read about the baptism of Jesus without remembering Reverend Ann's podcast episode, probably two or three years ago about freedom waters and the wrath of Rome. Do you remember this? Um, I don't. I don't. She did I am, this great yeah. work of kind of decentering the Christian ideas about baptism that we project back onto this and looked at this moment of baptism as a, a sort of, you know, the line in the sand of making allegiance to God's coming kingdom rather than to Rome this act of resistance and a, a ritualizing of that moment. And that to me gives a different abrupt power um, with that move of the spirit than sending to the wilderness, because it seems like a counterintuitive move. If you are going into these freedom waters with your community to declare that God's about to build a new world order kind of thing, to then be going out alone for a time of extended prayer and fasting um, doesn't necessarily seem like participating in God's new order of things. Um, so to me, there's this, it's the counterintuitive Jesus that we see throughout Mark of going against the grain and doing some weird, inexplicable things. I think Mark does a little less interpretive work for us in his gospel that leaves some mystery about the spirit that would drive Jesus out. Um, I'm also really captured by the um, beasts and the angel. This reads so differently to me than Matthew, where it you don't get any wild beasts, I don't think. Um, and the angel's ministrations to Jesus definitely feels much more like a reward that he earns by resisting the temptations of the Satan in Matthew. Whereas here, all of those things are just out there in the wilderness. There's the temptation and there's the beasts and there's the angels and they are all out there in this uncertain refining space. 
that feels a little more Linton to me, maybe than the Matthew version. Yeah, I like that. I like pointing that out and bringing up the baptism as that line drawn and, and the commitment, you know, the commitment of baptism and how it changes him how, or us and then how it must have, what happened to Jesus in that time and that he would, instead of immediately going to work or something, go out to the wilderness. So there's a wisdom in the wilderness that he had to go get that mm. we can't get that he couldn't have gotten otherwise. So that's also really interesting. And, and, but I still want to know the story. You know, this is the, this is where I do my midrash. I would do, mm -hmm. a, you know, like think about, I think there's another in the, another of the gospels, the story it, after he's tempted, I, I think it might be Matthew, though I don't remember, but where we get to the, we get the story and Satan's showing them all the things. Yeah. And then yeah. after Jesus resists all that, then suddenly he was waited on by angels. Yeah. But in Mark, you know, we don't get the whole story. We just like, we get to know that, and he's being waited on by angels. Mm -hmm. beasts. There's no beasts in Matthew, I don't think. No, no. So, so there's a wisdom to this wilderness, to this experience that was needed. So what is the wisdom? How can we get that wisdom? I would like that wisdom. And I would really like to be waited on by angels, but I'm not sure I've earned that right yet. <laughs> it's interesting. I was talking with a colleague who is a chaplain in a, a religious school. And it's a mostly white school. And this colleague is white. And he wanted a conversation partner around starting to do anti-racist work in this faith-based school. We were talking about this, trying to slow down the well-intentioned white folks. And that there was this big burst of energy last summer. Oh, this is terrible. And this is everywhere. And racism is pernicious. And we have to fix it in our classrooms immediately. Um, and yes. so he actually has been working really hard for several months to, um, to I, th I think, create some wilderness wandering space for them to sit with the discomfort, to have more introspection, to have smaller conversations, to, you know, not to jump into, we're going to have a symposium and we're going to change a policy and we're going to do the grand thing. Um, but to create some of that uh, scary, <laughs> unresolved, and yet grace-filled wilderness space for them to do some of that inner work so that when they do take their next step, um, which is happening soon, it has been more thoughtful and prayerful and critical and hopefully more impactful. Yeah, I love that. And I was just actually, before we got on this call, I was leading a little class for my church. Um, we have this little class called Truth Seekers. And um, right now we're, um, well, we're reading the, a book by Joan Chittister. It's just this little book called The Breath of the Soul. And it has all these little chapters about prayer. And today's prep chapter was about blessing and so it was about not only praying like when you're when everything's terrible but also praying in times of joy and abundance and um and then somebody said what about praying when everything's mediocre and <laughs> and and then people started talking about 
um, uh, part, part of what the chapter is talking about to get to the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, the joys in life and also the hard times in life are are our teachers. So, and so somebody was talking about learning the lessons from these things. And I was, I said something like, um, I, th I think that we teeter on the brink of bad theology when we want to jump to the lesson. You know what I mean? Uh, something happens, either wonderful thing or or a terrible thing. Mostly it's the terrible things that people are trying to figure out what the lesson is because, um, you know, they're trying to figure out why it happened. But yeah. Um, but if we just jump to the lesson, that's that's like a spiritualizing of of things that that leads to like everything has a reason. God's not going to give you more than you can handle kind of theology, which I just don't think is helpful. So I love what you're talking about, about this whole slowdown. Maybe that's the wilderness. Hmm. And maybe that's the Lent. Is, and what I said to the group was, I, I think it's important to let whatever, whatever it was, what, let the impact of that, whatever it is, like actually sit with you for a bit mm -hmm. you know, and try to try to like, how do you feel about it? What's going on? And, and so, instead of just jumping, well, I learned, you know, and obviously last summer, the lessons were low. Well, I learned that, you know, this violence of the police is super prevalent and I had no idea. Now I just want to leap into action where I think with, with white supremacy and with white folks finally understanding the gravity, even though, uh, it's so well hidden, man, because it takes, it took me about 40 years to really get it. But, um, you know, there's a grief, mm. there's a grieving because no matter what we do, we wake up with whites, with our, you know, whatever color peach, <laughs> we wake up in our skin and we're, we're participating, however, inadvertently in the atrocity. And I think that that's really hard for people that pick rock. So I love what you just said, like, Oh, oh, oh hold, pull the reins in. What what's going on for you with this? Don't, you're not going to jump in and fix it because mm. that's also leads to really fast burnout. Mm. The first time a, a white person who's all charged up stands and sees that police line, they're going to be like, oh, this is a huge bummer. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I didn't realize this was so like, hard and illegal. Yeah. And real. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I can just go, go home. Mm. So mm. I, so I love that. Yeah, a term I've heard for that dynamic is spiritual bypassing, using yes. spirituality to go around the hard thing. Yes, spiritual bypass. I've heard that term too. And, it, is, I, you know, I understand the desire for it. Yeah. And I'm sure that I've done it. And I'm sure that I've, I'm doing it right now. Or not right this minute, but at some point today I'll do it. But, you know, <laughs> but I think that... Um, I do encourage people, especially for grief, for grieving. And there's a lot to grieve. And I realized that years ago in seminary, when I went, we, I took a class, I took a, like a immersion course. And we went to, um, we went to Missouri to Ferguson, like in the 2015 in the year after. Mm -hmm. So I was really getting kind of an on the ground education. Uh, and I was still, uh, in a, I was in a different place and, um, you know, and, but I, what I real what I really learned in that trip was I had a lot of grieving to do. Mm. 
mm. you know, and that I wasn't going to be able to be very helpful in the movement work until I did some of that grieving. So, yeah, maybe Lent, maybe this wilderness, maybe this wilderness spirit driving Jeeves out to the wilderness was a little bit about that. Yeah. Grieving about the work. About and that might, that might be a little opening for some midrash work, some creative interpreting and filling in the gaps to imagine that Jesus having that moment out there with John, who I have always imagined. Um, I, I don't know. I imagine that they were children together because of their mother's connection, mm-hmm. but then maybe grew apart in young adulthood as they went in different paths and then had this encounter and I imagine Jesus having his own apocalyptic awakening as he's hearing John teaching and seeing all these people from different walks of life. Um, because in other gospels, it says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were down there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were, you know, all these folks had come together and claiming and praying for a new way of being. And that there is some grief in realizing what is broken with the world. But I also wonder if there was a sense that Jesus was grieving the life he was now putting behind him. But Mm -hmm. this was the start of his ministry work. And I think when we really do that grappling, when we're not just in this sort of explosion of enthusiasm, I'm going to fix the world, but have those moments, um, you know, you describe an overzealous white person looking at a police line or whatever those, those sort of deconstructing the zeal moments that make us buckle up and realize that this is the lifetime work. We have to grieve that white supremacy and empire isn't something we can fix. Yes. And we have to grieve that this is work we are called to do, but we'll never quite complete. And we have to grieve that we can't go back to the old mind we used to hold. Right. I imagine Jesus weeping and growing silent and getting angry and thinking all the what ifs and what abouts the life that he was saying goodbye to as he took on this work that in some sense he completed and in so many he did not. Yeah, that's intense. Under, and understanding the life into which he was headed. Yeah. He had a childhood. He had a mother and a father and a life. And, a, and, and, and if we believe all the lore, he had a, a vocation. And, mm-hmm. you know, he had a whole thing. He had education. He had a lot going for him, really, in so yeah. many ways. And that's like the story. God, he had so much going for him. Why did he have to do that? You know, and then, but this baptism, because... You know, baptism is that line, I think, if, if we take it seriously. Mm. He, and then the spirit drove him out. So, so, so in a sense, there's a, we can even infer that there's an unwillingness on his part. Mm. Like that, that wasn't his idea. Yeah. He was driven out into the wilderness. But nonetheless, he was driven out to get this wisdom from the beasts and from his solitude, from, from his from his resistance of the evil that he encountered, the evil Satan, whatever, I don't know if Satan's a person or a spirit or just his own mind, mm. you know, and then being waited on by the angels. So there was some grace in that adventure, but 
Yeah, I think so much of our spiritual journeys, in a way, aren't our idea. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my, it wasn't my idea, you know, to uh, go into ministry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it and, certainly is like, it's counterintuitive to whiteness to yes. work against it. Yeah, it wasn't my idea to actually um, live in such a way that I would call intentionally anti-racist because it's actually, yeah, it's, it's counter, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it, there's one thing to, to just say, oh, racism is bad and white supremacy is bad, but also people don't even get it. They, they don't get, they think white supremacy is a behavior. Like, oh, if you burn crosses or wear certain clothes and say certain words, you're a white supremacist. But white supremacy is like, it's the water, it's the ocean, it's not the shark. Yeah. And I think people don't, people don't get that. I certainly didn't get it. You yeah. know, I'm a latecomer. <laughs> well, and, and I think even those of us who think that we get it are always finding out we didn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I one still, more place where we need to be transformed and renewed and think about things differently and be in the world differently. It's not some people's idea mm -hmm. to embark on mm -hmm. on it. Like if there people are drawn into this somehow. Mm -hmm. And and our Christian I think our Christian faith and it's interesting we're in Lent because you know the whole Monday Thursday thing is Monday means like mandate or commandment. Mm -hmm. So really, this is the this is a mandate, you know, an anti uh, uh, anti racism or is, is a mandate, I think. Mm. And yeah. it's not not something that I think some people would would be excited about. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm still back there with you. You pointing out the driven into the wilderness, the passivity. <laughs> it's like, right. I just see him like all like being driven, like literally something like. Dragging him out, <laughs> dragging him out or, or pushing him out and him kind of like flailing, <laughs> flailing along until he's like out there. And then just just like, well, I guess I'm here now and I've got beasts and angels and Satan to hang out with. So really transfixed by the beasts and angels and Satan still. I am too. What a um, what a crowd. What a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> but the beasts particularly are interesting to me. I was thinking about how we have this four-year-old son and we take him on hikes and we have to teach him about animals and safety and that things want to be left alone. You don't have to worry while also teaching him caution. So I was thinking about how there's this discernment around what is safe and what is not. And I also want to name that dehumanizing language often sets folks up as animals. And we know that that is a sign not only of hatred and prejudice and systemic oppression, but is actually one of the cues for things like genocide. And so when we talk about discerning safety in the context of an anti-racist conversation, we just want to flag that that is wrong and inappropriate and in no way would we ever want to fall into that practice? We are looking at symbolic opportunities to think about safety and the ways that that sometimes can drive white people in unhelpful ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that, that white folks 
are confusing often their comfort with what is literally their physical safety. Mm. And, the, and so their discernment, our discernment around what is safe. So, so um, I mean, how many times have we heard, or if you have the Nextdoor app, which is or the oh, Nextdoor yeah. website, which is terrible. Like in, in our neighborhood, I live in a, a racially diverse neighborhood and it's always the white people that are like, their, their post will be like, there's two black guys sitting in a car in front of my house that's that's the post like and it's like okay well mm -hmm. and and i think you know it, it there's a discomfort because because white folks don't ever have to deal with racial tension because we're like the norm the, mm. the quote unquote no, you know default or whatever and then the issue of safety and calling the police when someone's uncomfortable because they're in the presence you know of of people of color or black people that's the pro that's that's where the safety has not been discerned yeah yeah and then what is actually what is actually safe like are you safe are you physically is someone's is someone's being in the presence of someone literally threatening your physical safety or are you just uncomfortable yeah and that's that's the discernment of what what is really safe yeah i also what see this safety? in myself yes, and in others, um, other white folks, and in my own experience, um, that when this this work of checking these assumptions and and working against white supremacy begins, the feeling of discomfort we have about the narrative of whiteness can also feel like an attack. Yes. Um, so all of a sudden, you're having a fight or flight response, this visceral defensiveness to someone just talking about systemic racism, to even name this aloud triggers that sense of unsafety. And so to instead take a deep breath, <laughs> recognize what is true risk and what is not, so that we can stay in the wilderness as long as we need to. Right. I mean, I think that that's, that book White Fragility covers that idea, that mm. white folks never have to deal with what she, what what's her name robin d'angelo calls white are not white but racial tension just just mm. the the awareness of of race yeah and then what i found is like just talking about racism like um makes some white folks be like that's racist mm -hmm. it's like no that's not <laughs> that's not racist like talking about racism isn't racist mm. or, or i naming racism isn't racist yeah and so and and, and there's that discomfort and that that's that's part of the what we were talking about earlier about the jumping from jumping from the from an from an event to to a solution without letting the impact that discomfort just just be with it yeah yeah and it's it's not you're not you're not in danger mm -hmm. you're just uncomfortable yeah well and even discerning angels too right because right. in the, in the hebrew bible Angels look like all kinds of things and all kinds of people. And right. are you going to welcome someone who's different from you? And then all of a sudden you're, you're sitting together at a table and they're telling you beautiful news that's going to change your life because it turns out they're an angel. <laughs> or right. do, do you risk pushing away someone because they're different from you and miss an encounter? Like you could, you could be entertaining angels unaware, mm -hmm. you know? So why don't we look at 
where this text leads to a way forward, noticing that it doesn't end in the wilderness, um, but transitions us back out after the arrest of John. As you said, he, uh, Jesus takes that on. What'd you say? Doing that John thing? <laughs> he's doing the John thing, but in a different way. Yeah. Because um, he's coming out of the wilderness and saying, the time is fulfilled. Yeah, the time is fulfilled. Um, so, but it's, it's not quite as dramatic as the John entrance that we're, we're always told about this dramatic entrance of John. Mm coming out of the wilderness and like repent and mm. going to the Jordan. And Jesus mm-hmm. just seems to be like showing up somewhere. I don't know where, I guess he's in Galilee. He came to Galilee <laughs> proclaiming the good news. The yeah. time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Cause at the beginning of Mark, we have what we, you know, right before our text today, John is saying the time is coming. And then Jesus is saying, no, it's here. Um, it also strikes me as um, almost like <laughs> changing your organizing tactics to fit the conditions <laughs> because Jesus is doing the John thing, but he's doing it in a new way. But there's also been an escalation with the arrest of John. That's and right. so we're seeing a new strategy for new conditions. So there's a different sense of urgency. There's a different tone. There's a different location, even as there's cohesion with the liberating words that came before. And so I think there's maybe call for our work of proclamation and living into a different way of being that is attentive to pivotal moments that are changing the conditions that we're working in. The arrest of John was really dramatic, and I don't recall offhand which gospel gives us all those details about Herod and his dysfunctional family and the violence and John the Baptist's head on a plate and all of that. It's a rupture in the community for that to happen. And so responding to that, attending to that, and adapting to that with the message seems noteworthy to me. Yeah, and I think I think it's safe to speculate that John probably still had followers yeah and john still had followers so so he's been arrested so his followers are you know who knows if they jumped right over to jesus though though if we believe the story you know that john did say someone else is coming and then the wit there was witness to him being baptized so but still i mean there's some there's some writing that suggests that the two were actually jockeying for disciples like uh, competing at one point but I do think you're right though that there's a there is a shift in strategy that Jesus he you know he's aware obviously that John's been arrested he probably thinks at some point he'll also be arrested but and maybe he could put it off for a little time to get some of the work done so Mm -hmm. maybe there is a less dramatic dramatic entry and just kind of a a proclamation. I mean, in Luke, you know, when he comes back, he goes into the synagogue, Mm -hmm. you know, and in John, it starts off with the turning of water into wine. And that's kind of like, Jesus doesn't even want to do that. His mother wants him to do it. (laughs) But I like that idea in terms of the, the, the hermeneutical lens, the, the, the different strategy for movement Mm. work. What is the, what is the way forward then? I think um, 
for me, it's really that whole, um, the wilderness being that reflecting point and that, like letting the impact of things resonate before we jump into action. Hmm. So that's part of the things. And then what you were talking about, about the discernment, about safety is really sticking out. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so those are kind of ways forward. Um, yeah. Especially for Lent. Yeah. And I think discerning to what our adaptations are. Um, you know, I think in some ways, probably every preacher yesterday or this coming Sunday will say something about like, haven't we been in Lent all year? I'm going to say that. <laughs> um, because the last time most of our communities were gathered together, it was during the season of Lent. Um, yes. And so there's this weird quality to the last year of feeling very Lenten, feeling very much like, but then also seeing some hope as vaccination rollouts are beginning um, and seeing some ways back into maybe some ways of movement work that we used to know it before. Um, but to say, what are the lessons we have been learning and will continue to learn in this wilderness that we want to hang on to? What are the lessons about accessibility and movement spaces that we need to remember and hang on to? What are the lessons we've learned about people power in the last year that we yes. need to hang on to? Um, what are, you know, what are some of the the wilderness wisdoms that we want to evolve our strategy for pulling folks into this work. Um, right. That's the, really good. And, and how do we resist this idea of like um, normal? We're going like, we're going to we'll get back to normal. Hmm. And because normal was already normal was a crisis. So coming out of this, long, long, long Lent, as you're saying, I think you're this long wilderness, but with a, a, a new intentionality mm. to, to resist whatever, then the, whatever will, will end up this resting point of what normal yeah. will be. And so maybe that's a good place for us to wrap up. I think it is. Do we have closing things to say? <laughs> we do. And I, okay. I will share them. Okay, um, great. First, thank you to Max, our sound editor, and, and all of your work. For folks who are curious about your, your own way forward from this conversation, we encourage you to check out Surge's Community Safety for All Toolkit. That's some really practical stuff about discerning safety thresholds and risk to, that um, Reverend Jane was talking about. Um, and we encourage you to become a community co-sponsor of the BREATHE Act as one way to make our way forward together. Um, there is also a really fabulous daily devotional from the Good Neighbor Movement in Greensboro called Black Lent that we would commend to your reading. It centers the voices of Black writers from across the states who are inspired by and embody the Black prophetic tradition. Good Neighbor Movement invites us to join them for 40 days, I guess now 39 days, when we're recording of spiritual renewal, contemplation, and liberation. And you can go to tiny.cc slash blacklint to subscribe. Reverend Jean, it was so good to share this space with you. Would you want to close us in a blessing? Yes. And it was really good to meet you, Reverend Claire. Really finally good to put the voice to the to a face.
Yeah. So blessings to all of you and all that you do uh, to bring about a new world, all that you do for liberation and for love. Uh, blessings to you all. And until next time, I'm Reverend Jean and I'm Reverend Claire. <laughs>